Welcome to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knabor Larsen and Håkon Steinen. Each episode of Percussion Perspectives features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. Hello, I'm Henrik Knabor Larsen and in this episode I meet with American percussionist Jennifer Torrance living in Oslo. We talk about how to work with composers in a more close collaboration and uh, different approaches to how to create music in new ways. Hello, Jennifer Torrance. Great to be here in the podcast. So let me start asking you a more uh, general question. So is there a connecting thread or a leitmotiv that runs throughout your practice of percussion? Yes, the first response would be that the social aspect of what we do and mm-hmm. being in contact with other people, having a kind of communion around music, music, music being the space for our communion is very important. And I think that's what led me to collaborating a lot with composers and wanting to collaborate more deeply and to spend more time with composers and looking for ways to come closer than the email exchange, like when the PDF arrives in your email. But even before that, when I, you know, when I was first studying Zanakis or Stockhausen's pieces and wanting to know those people, even though I felt anyway that when I play a piece by George Lewis, I feel I'm truly spending hundreds of hours with this human being, mm. even if I only know him very briefly. Uh, and he didn't write the piece for me. Here I'm thinking of North Star Boogaloo. But just to think of that act as getting to know a person, reading their biographies, reading their texts. I would say this would be the the thread going through all the work, whether I'm playing the classic pieces or making new works. Mm. Yeah. So a personal connection to the composer, you could say. Yeah. And also you and people that I've worked with. It's something about the, you know, like sharing meals, like when we played our duo project and spending time with your wife and all of these things is like the music is is the table around which we break bread. Yeah, and it makes sense also that it's not only playing for an audience, but it's also a community of of researching the music and creating new ideas. Mm. Can, you, can you describe a little more in detail your your method of working with composers the recent years? I know you have been developing a kind of method or <laughs> principles for how you do it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um I've collaborated in different ways, some some more conventional ways where you ask the composer for the piece and then it arrives as a score and then you go and learn it and then mm. show it to the composer when you're done. I've also worked more workshopping sketches, uh, workshopping new ideas, lots of times where, and every percussionist knows this, where the composer is just like overwhelmed by our battery of sounds and you have to kind of walk through what every instrument can and can't do. Yeah. And then I've recently been asking composers to what I call devise. It's, it comes from theater and devise theater, which is basically to go into a space where you have a f- more flat structure. It's not totally flat, but more flat than the typical relationship between performer and composer. And we develop the piece in real time. So this involves a lot of improvisation. It involves basically the the piece is made as we go and very often there is no score because it's a kind of like do this do that and i remember and it's mm. action based 
And this also has led me to, I guess, making work that is more improvisatory in its in its nature, um, and and having finding more pleasure in in that kind of composed piece. Mm-hmm. But that was especially during my PhD because we had a lot of time, yeah. you know, three or four years. And I can say, let's work on this for two years and it's actually possible. But now that I'm out of my PhD, I feel that I go back to the old way in a certain sense. And it's also because of COVID. Uh, I try I just commissioned a couple of video pieces thinking, can we make this over Zoom? Can we make this in some way? And I honestly don't think we succeeded. <laughs> Partly because when the piece is finished, it's this fixed thing. And my relationship to the piece normally would be that I go and perform it and I keep it alive. And my score is, my body is the score. Yeah, yeah. Now it's just you press play and I almost don't even remember doing it. Mm. And then you watch, it's weird. But I have a collaboration with Evan Torven now, which is really interesting because he just sent me sketches and then the sketches are more like memory things. If I remember it, then I can play those sketches. Otherwise I can build off of it or do something else. And we have kind of agreements. Mm. Um, so he's, so he sends me materials, but then I kind of pick and choose. And then he, we speak over zoom and he says, yes, no, yes, no, this sort of thing. And that I guess is a, a kind of uh, middle ground. We can't be in the same space but we can still improvise, let the body be the score. Yeah. Mm. And just to go a little bit back, so so how did you start improvising in this manner? Was it part of your education or did you meet that some point or was it just something you were doing because you could? I was never taught to improvise. I wish I was. I was always a student who wanted to do everything as perfectly as possible and was most comfortable if all the directions were given. Mm-hmm. But in the process of making work or or asking for pieces, it's just been something that has come back again and again and again. And it's been a very organic consequence of being in the same room with another person. It's been it started more like a choreographer dancer. Choreographer mm-hmm. says move your body like this, and then the dancer does. But it's still their body, so it's not exactly what the choreographer said. Yeah. Where yeah. It, So the, and if the choreographer had written it down, it would it would be a little bit different than the person's body. But there's something that happens when the notation goes away that mm. opens up for this. And now I feel completely comfortable. But it took maybe four years to feel like it was improvisation is actually a space where I can be creative. Mm. So it's actually come in your mature days, so to speak. Oh yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so would it have been different if you were taught it? I'm sure it would be different, um, partly because how I understand improvisation now is that the musician has these sounds and gestures and ideas that are just circulating again and again and again and again, and everything has this history. So that how I've come into it is I'm I come into it through somebody else's material, like Evan Torvun. I have mm-hmm. his material, and then I improvise on it, but I don't have the same historical. Mm not heaviness, but just the history of those choices in the same way. So it's been really free for me. And mm. now when I start to improvise from nothing, I can feel this history, I think is the the way of thinking about it. So maybe if I had been taught, I would have come into those situations with composers with a diff- different kind of freedom or not freedom. I, I actually think I'm more, I was more free because I was so green. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you can get the feeling sometimes even with, with, 
with jazz musicians that that they are not improvising because they have really they are taught how the the it should all fit together and it seems like they are doing the same thing as they have done before so to speak mm. so you could if you dare you could argue that you're improvising more than they are doing yeah interesting yeah okay was there ever a significant break or change in your career The biggest break or significant change in my career happened when I quit working in the Arctic Philharmonic uh, in Northern Norway, where I was principal percussionist. And I had a very interesting role there. It's a very diverse program, but it's still an orchestra job. So when I quit it, uh, it was a great decision for me because then I was able to yeah, spend weeks and weeks and weeks with certain composers and... Mm make our little pieces i mean it's just so wonderful no regrets that was a very big big decision though yeah of course it's your income you're taking away and see what you can put instead totally yeah but, but brave it's, to do it's income it's predictability it's, it's structure but also those things were maybe the predictability and the structure those are the things i struggled with Mm, yeah. Could you mention some of your most significant influences, like musical influences or personal influences or other things? I can speak about people who inspire me. Um, it's so tricky because I feel with classically trained percussionists, the idea of being an artist in your own right is quite rare. And it's just something that I start to feel now as after this PhD, after making a lot of work where I start to understand what I'm doing. Um, I can't say I fully understand it yet, but things that inspire me at least, uh, one is a percussionist named Matthias Shack Arnott, who's actually half Danish and he's, he works yeah, in Australia. Uh, he used to be part of Speak Percussion. Now he's making installations and incredible solo pieces where you have this feeling that he doesn't have any limits. He's not intimidated by any kind of logistical limitation. So one project he did, he made a table that's definitely bigger than arm's width that would spin in a circle extremely fast. And he just lays materials on the table. And as it spins, he can just put mallets down and suddenly it's going like, mm. or he can put a cymbal down and it will start to eventually sing as it rubs against the table, as the table rubs against it. And he has another project where he filled the room with different kinds of hanging instruments and chimes. And I don't know how, but they all spin around him. So it's like the table, but he's the one standing still. And then the whole room is moving around. It's just amazing. And then I, I would like to move towards work that is less compact, less suitcase oriented, Uh, more like dream. I love the dream state that you feel like he must have been in when this came to mind because it's just just on yeah, the edge yeah. of what's possible. But I really am very influenced by certain dance practices and choreographers. I love this conceptual dance like Xavier Leroy and uh, Jerome Bell. Pieces where the performers, they are dancers or maybe they're amateurs There's something about this space that they find between the body on stage without, with very little scenography or none. It's just a body on a stage doing simple tasks 
oh, it's hard to describe. You just have to see the work if you haven't. Um, but on the, so on the opposite side of this Matthias Shackarnett dream state, huge explosion, I love work like these scrographers that it's minimal materials and it's just like the human being. This is a piece of Veronique Doisneau, which was Jerome Bell and a ba ballerina who is about to retire in real life from the National Ballet. And the whole time she's just talking about which pieces she liked to dance and which ones she didn't like to dance. And she does some little excerpts and it's the humanity in it, I think is, mm. is what I'm drawn to an answer. A nice answer. It's, it's in two directions, right? Yeah. So the very close and personal and, and then something that is breaking limits and, and starting the dreams. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I discuss sometimes with my colleagues these days that, at which time did we start to see ourselves as artists, if ever? Which is, I mean, if you were an artist in other fields, you might have the feeling of being an artist much more early. Yeah. But it seems like and we talk a lot about this reprodu reproduction that we're doing. Yeah. So somehow right now we're working on pedagogical projects where we try to, to make the students realize that they shouldn't find the true answer but they have to find many answers, yes. different, different exercises to start that process more early in the, in the development. How do you like, what's an example? A, a very simple example is just to interpret the same phrase or the same piece in two significantly different ways and present the two versions yeah. as truly as you can feel both of them. Hmm. And then start to discuss the choices behind them because then it's, it's not uh, drawing towards one solution, then it's drawing towards many solutions, hmm. which I think might open the, the space a little bit more early in the, in the career. Absolutely. It's similar. I think we even talked about it, but that I've recently become interested in not planning so much, uh, especially in chamber music where you decide hmm. tempo, you decide articulation, phrasing, and you rehearse it and you drill it. So that when you come to the concert, the concert is just a test for if you mm. can deliver on those agreements. But we all know that the concert brings new situations, mostly acoustic ones, but then also nerves. Yeah. And yeah. that if, can we allow to not plan all of those things and you just rehearse many different tempo, tempi and many different phrasings. And then when you get there, open your ears and see what happens. Yeah, that's very interesting. We're working also a part of the project is to, to, to try to interpret in a more free way. And then in the rehearsals, we don't do the same thing. We always yeah. do a new thing and, and we don't start, for instance, making the synchronization work. Right. It's just, it has to be a, a totally different focus. And it's really, really interesting. It's, it's such nice rehearsals because we are so relaxed and we're just all the time finding new ideas and new approaches. Yes. So yeah, it's, it's not finding a, one solution that you need to stick to but it's just opening up for more solutions all the time yes so i'm quite quite we're not so long in the process but i'm quite curious what will happen in the concert situation with this kind of approach yes and you know steve Schick has a, a phrasing of it for himself which is that the concert situation is a is a weather pattern yeah exactly yeah <laughs> i used that last week yeah <laughs> and it's really like I think until recently, I was like, yeah, it's a weather pattern. Sometimes it's like hailing. <laughs> yeah. But to be less like that and more like 
when I moved to Norway, there was this pier that went out to the ocean or the Norway and all these Norwegians were like, you just have to go to the pier when the wind is in your face and feel alive. And I just understand this. But now I've lived here for nine years. So I start to understand that you can enjoy the hail in the face. Um, And now I'm trying to say, okay, but can I enjoy that in the concert situation? Is there something interesting there when it really feels like almost dangerous, actually? As a direct result of the digitalization of all parts of music creation and musical performance, it will more and more be possible to guarantee the artistic quality of a piece of music and abandon the open nervous situation of the Ur Premiere. With artificial intelligence, composition, all traces of unprofessionality could easily be eradicated. As we all know, we at some level, technology poses a potential threat to the existence of the musicians as we gradually more and more clearly see more and more examples of technology taking the role of musician, sometimes without traces of traditional human expressivity. More and more robots and robotics and biotic are surpassing the levels of human performance levels, first in terms of speeds and loudness, but now more and more and more also in musicality. technology poses a potential threat to the existence of the musician as we gradually more and more clearly see more more examples of technology so what would you not have missed there's very little i would have done without i think Uh, i think the main thing i would not have missed is the overwhelming gender imbalance in our field and the misogyny that I carried in myself Mm. for a very long time because of it. Mm. I would not have missed that. So that's a driving factor for you maybe? For sure now I'm making many decisions thinking about creating a world which is my community of people that I have around me and that I get to be a part of their life, making that a world I can tolerate. Mm-hmm. And I think for too long, I was only around men, definitely only white people. It's not tolerable anymore. Mm. So it, it does, it does drive a lot, many decisions. Yeah. 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 It's true. Our, our contemporary music world is, is definitely much driven by white people at least. And also a lot of by men. Yeah. So what would you like to undo? I would like to undo the systems of racism and misogyny that shape our consciousness. That's a big project and I have a lot of work to do in myself. And then in terms of something even closer to the instrument, I would like to undo my wish for control. Mm. And it's also in my personal life, how I make decisions, absolutely professional and personal life would like to undo my wish to master things to control things and my my project now my research project is called performing precarity and this is one of the layers in the project which is in contemporary music to what extent are we still mastering our instrument the way we did when we learned percussion or Mm -hmm. whatever instrument you play and 
to what extent are pieces still asking for that? Because so many pieces are asking for all kinds of stuff, new instruments, mm. theatrical things that you alluded to before, playing with technologies and things that we just, you just don't study them. It's really learning on the fly. And, and it's something around amateurism and expertise, but there's also this thing around that it seems we're not as interested in mastering and perfecting also because they're not really able to <laughs> but, yeah, when, when we're speaking on stage or singing or whatever, it's just never going to be like a professional who does that. So then I start to think now, could I go further? Can I go all the way and not be a, an amateur at everything, but to just be conscious that mastery is, was always impossible. It will always be impossible. And just to kind of loosen that and have more fun and play. Like what you're talking about with your students, when they pick one interpretation of a piece and then they try to master it, all the doors that shut when they stop playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this thing. I would like to undo it. That's really, really interesting. And yeah, I think this general wish for control is incredible in, in our world as percussionists. <laughs> I mean, we have so many instruments to master and we have so many traditions coming at the same time in our in our studies, we have the whole orchestral tradition. We have the, all the contemporary music with really hardcore pieces. We need to spend a lot of time on, and we could go back playing Bach on the marimba, and then we need to master the whole music history. <laughs> history. So it's it's incredibly easy to get to a point where you have more things to master than is actually possible for a human being. And isn't it more about the the returning to Bach or returning to snare drum, returning to any practice? It's, it's in that returning that if you've mastered it, then it's closed. There's nothing left except for you, your own celebration of your control. But I, I know I will never master the snare drum. So I return to it and I return to it. And it's always teaching me things. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a nice laboratory. This, these things where you can really feel the, the smallest details and you realize how you can develop and how your mind develops in that process. Yes. But that's also another perspective than being told that now you have to master this. Yes. <laughs> and then this and so, yeah, so it's a totally different perspective. So that leads to the next question. What makes you happy? I think happiness is a very elusive state. Many things bring me joy. I feel joy all the time. Uh, <laughs> playing music, listening to music, eating food, drinking wine, uh, walking outside, seeing Norway just out of my window, talking to my family, all many of these things bring me joy, but happiness, this feels in my mind like a, a more permanent, not permanent, but a, a bigger state than those joyful yeah, yeah, yeah. flashes. I had a period in October, 2020 that lasted three months mm -hmm. where I honestly can say I felt happy. Uh, and it had to do with this feeling of flow that I had which was a feeling of uh, effortlessness and generosity that was, it was so easy to be, to have these kind of generosity that was also towards myself as well as mm. others, this, mm. this space. Um, and I don't think I really felt this before actually. So that's why my happiness thing is, it's a little bit different because that felt so, it was like other new level, mm. new level of yeah. self-understanding and, happiness but now i feel more like i'm in a period of winter in norway it's little splashes of joy every day <laughs> <laughs> yeah of course and maybe i mean 
happiness is not a, a long-term relationship but it's it, it can it's, it's very interesting that it's it's the effortless that that makes you there the the, the fights that has become less fight and more flow maybe it's flow totally yeah. at least yeah. that's what it feels like what made me that way i don't know a million small gears just clicked. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay what is your next project my very next project is tomorrow i will record with Sigrun Gomnes, who's a member of Penguin's a piece by Alvin Singleton, who's an American composer, a black composer, and the piece is called Extension of a Dream, and it's from 1977. Old school, you know, woodblocks, cowbells, tom-toms, all the old sounds, and it's, but it's a very interesting piece because it has this sort of Veresian mass like he has, he's in a certain sound mass and then it stops and then there's a new sound mass. And with these old sounds, kind of orchestral precision, it's very nice. And then uh, after this, I have a video projects in an organization called No I Banda, which is in Montreal. And I've made three video works uh, of varying styles, each 10 minutes long. One is with composer Carolyn Chen and others with Marina Puliokina, I'm sure I said that wrong. Uh, and then my friend on the Martis, Erlene Holden, who's also in Penguins. So we, it's three collaborative pieces and they'll be shown at the end of the month. You're not uh, falling asleep during the COVID crisis? Not at all. I've been really, back to the, the joy, very happily occupied with different things. I've also been writing some research texts. So one is about um, COVID and how it's, revealed our entanglement yes we all understand that and our vulnerability yes but then when i think about pieces where you touch each other on stage like we played this yeah 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 on slapping piece the vice versa these kinds of pieces are impossible now and even before covid i understood that that was a kind of transgressive or dangerous piece but now after covid or during covid you get this new layer of the risk in those kinds of pieces so i try to reflect on that a little bit just keeping on. I was supervising a project for a for a composer uh, last year, just during the crisis, and his work was it was playing through vibrating transducers that the audience should touch, so they would get part of the music from the vibrations and not from sound. Yeah, nice. But imagine uh, an audience walking around and touching the same surfaces <laughs> was kind of <laughs> it was the worst project you could make in this time. Uh, Actually, that, those were pieces exactly like that that I wanted to do in this research project, Performing Precarity. And, and I was even thinking of Jeppe Ernst's music, where they're touching each other's skin. And then he made a piece for this alphabet for the blind. I'm just a braille, a braille alphabet. And the person is supposed to rub their hand down the paper. And then it's like the musical rhythms when they mm. rub it down. And we had organized that we would display these pieces. It's just like <laughs> not possible. <laughs> And what do you think is is the the future of percussion in this world that is maybe more aware of what it means to connect to each other? I really, really believe that pieces like the one you just described uh, that are physical, uh, pieces where there's a sense of intimacy with other human beings will be even more important. I think before COVID, they had a kind of gimmicky, touchy-feely, new agey vibe. Uh, but now I think we understand that they were getting at something very essential and, and needed and human. Mm. 
I don't know. That's that's just a detail. I think that's something that will happen. But for the whole field, it's a good question. What are your predictions? Well, in in Denmark, there's a lot of uh, attention towards culture from the general audience, but not so much from the politicians. So it's it's a kind of weird major crisis for the sustainability of the arts and at the same time more people than ever realizes that it's important mm. so in, in general so it's really hard to predict how the how the future will be if there will be better times for the art or worse times it's really hard to say and also yeah the things that connect people like mm. singing together and being together in in a way where you can see that that more people are on the screen kind of is very important at the moment but it's hard to say how that would be in the future mm. because that's the feeling we we have right now this is the need we have right now to to experience I hope in my own life I hope that when I get to travel again I will travel a little slower take an extra day yeah these places and get in touch <laughs> just get in touch <laughs> <laughs>